I'm Amy Halpern-Lath. And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Today, we listen to an encore of our conversation with Dr. Alan Singer, a former New York City high school teacher and now teacher educator at Hofstra University. Dr. Pablo Muriel, a social studies teacher at Alfred E. Smith High School in the Bronx and a cooperating teacher adjunct also at Hofstra University. And Dennis Bellin Morales, a Gates Millennium Scholar and recent graduate of Hofstra, where he majored in history, social studies education, and Latino studies. Dennis was Pablo's student at Alfred E. Smith and both Alan and Pablo's student at Hofstra. Welcome, Alan, Pablo, and Dennis. Alan, Pablo, you recently collaborated on a book titled Supporting Civics Education with Student Activism, Citizens for a Democratic Society. A question for all of you, why teach civics education? Pablo, why don't you start? <laughs> well, I think from looking at it from where I am, um, I'm working in the 16th Congressional District, one of the poorest in the nation in the South Bronx. My students are some of the most immediately they're affected by any policy changes that happen at any level of our society. They typically get, they, they feel the effects and there's no, there's no shield or, or filter for them. They, they get whatever they get. Uh, so when I, I finally started to teach my students uh, you know, and get into these classrooms, I started to notice that many of them have very, very little knowledge of the basic concepts of government. Um, my students, for example, had ne never been to uh, Washington, D.C. So th there's nothing realistically that they connect. You know, taking them to Washington, D.C., now it's easier to teach something like the, our, our government systems and, and, and the buildings and how they're designed and, and so on and so forth. But they, when it's that, when it's not connected, it, it, it's, it's barely understood. So we thought, and I, this is one thing that I saw 20 years ago in 2000 and, uh, 2001 when I walked in as a substitute, this is something that I immediately identified, a lack of, of, of civics, uh, of literacy within civics and, and citizenship. Now, I approach the civics from two different directions. One, and I'm a Deweyan, and I believe and I know that students learn through their experience, not from what they're told. So. One of the things we stress in the book is that the standards for civics education actually promote student activism as active citizens in their communities, their schools, their nation, because that's how you make knowledge meaningful to students. So that's the first thing. The second thing, I'm also a citizen. I've been an activist since the 1960s, civil rights, anti-war, social justice issues. We're living in a very turbulent time in the United States today. We're, we're living in the era of COVID. We're living in the Black Lives Matter struggles. We're living in a time of tremendous economic inequality. And we're living in a time where democracy itself is threatened in the United States by authoritarian movements on the right that have included the president. So. I'm looking at what's going on in American, I'm looking at what's going on in the world, the usual climate change. And I'm saying to myself that we need to promote student activism so they see themselves as agents for change to ensure democracy, to ensure social justice, to ensure climate viability. So unless we find ways to get students to develop the habit of mind, 
where they see themselves as activists, a lot of the things that we value, a lot of things that we cherish are at great risk. I'm a father, I'm a grandfather, and I would like to see the world continue for future generations. Dennis, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I would like to add that I'm looking at the, I don't have my own set of students yet. Like I don't have my own physical classes yet, but Alan and Pablo are both teachers of teachers. So they're teaching me to become a teacher. And what Alan said was true. And I didn't write about, you know, students learning through experience. And I didn't quite get that in high school. Like I didn't really, you know, I was smart enough to get the Gates Millennial Scholarship and, and things like that. And I was, I didn't really see that opportunity being there, but my experience with civic engagement and looking at it now, looking back and reflecting upon it, I realized that civic engagement is important in the classroom because we as teachers, getting students involved civically, allow each student to manifest their own goals and dreams. And it manifested differently. Pablo simply allowed us, he told us to go to a community board meeting, find out what was going on in your community, which we did. And a lot of us in that class in 2016, became agents of change in our own ways and we had our own goals my i was very big on metal detectors and school to prison pipeline and this idea of entering into a penitentiary and how school should be more a place to learn but that's because i like the school building i like learning i like reading but some of my friends looked at it differently i had a friend named isaiah washington I don't, isaiah thomas and isaiah washington i don't know if you remember the isaiah pablo but they both had this big thing about um, nutrition and school buildings and becoming an agent of change and this idea of what are they feeding students who go to lower income schools, you know, and that's where that's where it manifests. So yes, our experiences, we do learn through our experiences. And for me, like it helped me realize what I wanted to do in life and like gave me like a goal and it helped my, my friends do the same thing. Other people became more like artistic, you know, they wanted to express it through, through art. Um, I know Pablo has a student who did it through music. You know, our experiences, you know, just simply getting involved in a simple community board meeting, seeing what's going on. And that allows us to, like they both said, it allows us to to see how we can, to see that our voices do matter. You know, it gives us that ability, that confidence, you know, like I might have came from the poorest congressional district in the country, right? But I did attain the Gates Millennial Scholarship, right? So, and people always looked at me like I was, crazy because they said that I wouldn't be able to get that right the entire the only person who really believed in me in, in that school was Pablo uh he's the only one that said like you know the one he told me a year before he told me you're crazy he said the only problem the only stress you're going to have a year from now is that you know you won't know what university or like scholarship you're going to accept and I didn't believe him I thought he was crazy I'm being honest I thought he was crazy and that I wasn't going to be able to to acquire this and I learned through my experiences with him and and becoming a community organizer that like, I do learn better. I did learn my rights better. I did learn everything that I've learned because I was more involved, hands-on. And maybe that's because I learned, but I think all students learn better like that, in my opinion. Very do, Ian. <laughs> Alan and Pablo, what are the essential components of the approach you recommend in the book? Well, I, I think the first key is you have to start from where students are and the issues that concern them. Uh, you can't impose issues on them. The second, in, in, in this area, Pablo and I took different paths. One of the things that I did in schools is I would always form a political action club at the school. 
And the political action club would then engage the kids in the projects. Pablo tended to run the projects through his own classes. Let, let me give you an example of one of the, the most successful projects that I was engaged in. I was teaching about Roe v. Wade in Supreme Court cases. This was a number of years ago when the Supreme Court had a case coming up with a possible review of Roe v. Wade. Four young women in my class came to me and said they wanted to go to a pro-choice rally in Washington. Could I take them? What I said was I couldn't take them as an individual, but if they raised it with the school political action club, which we called the forum club, and the forum club endorsed the participation, I could take them as a the faculty advisor to the club. I then went with these four young women to Washington when well, they raised it with the club. When we came back, they met with the club and they proposed that the club for the next rally in October, rent a bus and take large numbers of students. The club endorsed the idea and decided to have a abortion rights reproductive freedom debate. And what they did is we invited a speaker from an anti-abortion group to come one week and from a pro-choice group to come another week. Students organized the presentations, hundreds of kids came to the discussions. And based on that, they were able to fundraise and get a bus to go for their own group. And 42 kids went to Washington for that pro-choice rally. Other time, the club took on the issue of apartheid. And they organized forums at the school on the apartheid issue. They organized to support the anti-apartheid campaign. And then when Nelson Mandela came to Yankee Stadium, in the spring of 1990, again, they organized to get a bus so they could go to see Nelson Mandela speak at Yankee Stadium because they were anti-apartheid activists. And this group of about 30 students at the time took full credit for his release from prison. <laughs> they thought they did it. And what the club did in this case, they had brought in speakers from the ANC to speak at the school, but Primarily, they coalitioned with our local congressman at the time, whose name was Major Owens. So working through this political action club, the students became involved in these things. One of the most successful components was they took, they took on the issue of condom availability in schools. In 1991, testifying at the city council, at the Board of Ed, and with a parents coalition, they actually succeeded in getting, convincing the Board of Ed to promote condom availability in the high schools. So these kids had a tremendous sense of their success as activists, but we primarily worked it through the political action club that then engaged, ran programs throughout the school to engage other kids. Now again, Pablo, why don't you talk about how you, you had a somewhat different approach. So my approach, uh, it, it's obviously similar to Alan, but I take a much more, I don't want to say less organized. I want to say uh, much more grassroots. The, the kids I teach, um, one of the biggest complaints that every teacher has is that uh, lack of parent participation. So in, in the school that I work in, you know, I, I have to contact the parents, obviously. I have to get through them, but the parents mostly refer me back to their, their kids. So I, I have that going, with, which is somewhat of a great thing. So anyway, starting off, 
I think I want to go all the way back to when I first started working at University Heights, which is a high school that, that I mentioned. He, uh, that school, I remember Alan, first of all, I remember. Tell the story about the mice. <laughs> all right, but yeah, that's what I was going with. This is when it all first started. So I, I went in to teach and, uh, you know, I, I kept in contact with Alan because I, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to teach for a long time. I, I really honestly thought it was going to be two or three years. And I said, I'll try this and, and, and let's see if it works. And I used to stay in contact with Alan. And I remember when I first walked into the classroom and I'm teaching and all the kids jump up on the desk. I see the girls scream and jump up on the desk. And I'm thinking that they're running a prank. And it was uh, one of the girls says, no, it's the, you know, it's the mice. They're always running around. So it's either mice or water bugs, you know? So I said, you can't be serious. So as I'm teaching, and, you know, I, I see a mouse run by and, and again, they scream and, and then they start giving the mice names like Mickey, you know, it, the school was in disrepair. The auditorium, they used to call it the shish room because it was, it was, they used to say you can't go in there because uh, when it rained and this is true, it would, it would leak in, in the uh, auditorium. So the structure was completely, it just wasn't sound. Um, there was no, no library, no, no resources. So I remember calling Alan and saying, how am I supposed to do this? This is almost impossible. And Alan turns around and says, well, what you should do is get them engaged, you know, start, you know, getting them involved in their own lives. So I said, what else do I have to lose? Let me do this because I, I, I couldn't do that for too long. So I started telling the kids, as soon as you go home, guys, I, I'm going I'm to do something. I'm gonna, and I wrote this into my lesson plan. Go as, on your walk home. I want you to identify things that you see that you may not have seen before. For example, and I give one example. I said, none of you can use this. And you cannot say it, you cannot use this, but you can use other things. And I would say, there are no garbage cans in, in front of the school building and therefore garbage accumulates, right? So the kids were just trying to find different things, but they couldn't use that one. And so eventually they came back and they started telling them, what do we do? And, and then I, at the same time, it, it, it's, a, it's a US history course and I have, I'm teaching them about the structure of government. So I said, so who's in charge of this? So now I got them to, first we're gonna identify who's in charge, who are the people in charge with. So this was a class lesson. But it was so engaging because it was about what they were bringing into class. And so as, they're, as, they are, as we're analyzing this in class and how we talk to these people, my position at that point is, okay, who, who do you guys want to contact and why? So they're, they're doing the research and they're telling me why they want to contact them. Okay, now everyone's going to write a letter. Now here's what we're going to do. Um, you guys are going to deliver it. And whoever can't deliver it, you're going to uh, mail it in. And so most of the class decided to deliver it. Uh, and I remember they delivered it to the assemblyman who then got this other gentleman involved who was another assembly person. And so we got them to come in. Uh, you know, we did a town hall meeting and they spoke to the college. And uh, ultimately, we, we were able to secure several million dollars from the city and the DOE to fix up the, the classrooms. And, and so we ended up getting a brand new uh, auditorium. We ended up getting a library. We, we got a bunch of, uh, even a new cafeteria and a, and a bunch of, even a, a labs for, for science and new classrooms. And the school was there since 1981. And this is 2008. And 2008, they come to us and say, well, we, we love what you've done with the building in the last two years. You guys repaired, they made it very nice. And 2009, they came and said, well, now you have to go. You got to find a place to go. And I, and I, I was shocked. And I said, what? And uh, they said, this Bronx Community College, now that the building was fixed because of the student campaign, wanted the building back and wanted the high school out. Yes. And, and that became a campaign. So I remember calling Alan again and saying, Alan, we fought. We did all this. 
And now the kids are losing the building. I mean, this is even the teachers are disheartened at this point because the teachers were part of this. Everyone was kind of getting involved in this. And so we decided, Alan, Alan turns around and says, well, let's turn this into another civic lesson. I said, okay, you know, let's, let's do this. And I started to, we, we started to combine our ideas and, and came up with, well, actually we were invited to, I was invited to a PEP meeting, but I was so frustrated that I said, hey kids, how would you guys like to see how a PEP meeting works? PEP, Pablo. What's a PEP meeting? Uh, Bloomberg put a panel for educational policy, which was a rubber stamp uh, from 2000. He started them, I think, in 2008 or nine, and it just it, it, they were a rubber stamp for closing schools and reopening them, uh, reopening new schools. And it was more, I believe, it was it was to create space for charter schools. But that's just my personal belief. Although data, you know, kind of supports my theory in that sense. But I was started going to the PEP meetings and questioning them. And then we figured out that the PP meeting was a lie. It, it, it was a straight front. When I would go to the microphone, uh, they wouldn't be listening. They'll have a, a Pepsi bottle up. They'll just be talking to one another and sort of kind of uh, it being very dismissive of the community. And that was in the Bronx. So then I said, you know what? I, I, I'm going to turn this into a lesson. And I started inviting kids with me to the PP meeting. And the first one was in Brooklyn Tech, which ended up uh, because the UFT asked uh, how many people want to go. I said, I'm going to go. And I, I said, I'm going to go by myself. And I asked my, my kids who were part of, of participation in government. I said, how would you guys like to see government in action? So I'm going to go to the PP meeting. And we knew what it was. And I'm going to be in, in Brooklyn Tech. If some of you want to come, that'll be great. You can write it up and I'll give you some extra credit. You know, I'm thinking three kids are going to show up. I had over 60, 70 kids show up from the Bronx, the PP meeting. We ended up on Channel 11 News. We, that was when Kathy Black was actually being, getting booed. And she was booed up. Those are my kids. Uh, they kind of scratched. Just a clarification for people who may not know, listeners who may not know Kathy Black. Do you want to give well, a... Kathy Black was the, the, the Betsy DeVoe of New York City for Bloomberg. So uh, that's the best way to put it, I think. She was the person in charge, uh, our commissioner of, of education here, our chancellor. And she was a businesswoman who came from a magazine world. Or, or not even, I think it was uh, the, the modeling world or something along those lines. But it was business. She had nothing to do with education, but she was selected for the position by Bloomberg at the time. Uh, she only lasted a couple of months because... Yeah, yeah, I mean, it lasted a couple of months because I didn't know this, but my kids kept going to PP meetings because they found it a lot of fun. And then they met other people organizations and they started to get involved. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. They used to come back and bring pictures, and I used to just like uh, email them to Alan, like because I thought it was funny, you know. I'm thinking this is fun, but it's I know it's a learning experience, but I'm I'm having fun with the fact that the kids are having fun. So the fact that the kids are enjoying themselves, but it's it's a purely organic learning experience. I think that's what made the, the vast difference in these things. So anyway, let me just ask first, just out of curiosity, which was the college that was trying to get it back, and secondly, were you successful? Okay, no, oh, there we go. So the Bronx community, it was the Bronx Community College. The, the high school was inside of the Bronx Community College. And this was covered by, by some, some newspapers. Alan was, was following it because he, he was writing about in from the Huffington Post at the time. So Alan would be like my microphone. Like, Alan, I need you for this because here's what's happening down here. No one's paying attention. And so uh, when they came, I turned, you know, not myself. I can't say it was myself. It, it was all of us. Alan included, my, you know, I would call Alan, I'll get ideas. Uh, you know, the, the principal was very open at the time. You know, uh, we need help. Let's see if we can stay around. 
So we turned it into a civics lesson, which is perfect. And the kids were contacting news reporters and they were contacting uh, the, the DOE. And then the last time they did two PEP meetings. The first one, they did a PEP meeting at our school and they showed up the PEP. And, and this is written somewhere in one of the smaller newspapers. The largest hall they had, uh, which is a Memorial Hall, where they do all their gatherings, it was filled to capacity to the point where it did not fit one more person. And we're talking about a school with only at the time 435 students. It still has 435 students. And every parent, communities came out and fought. They, they sort of came out and, and they pretended and then they were still moving forward. So then uh, they figured the last PEP meeting was held in Staten Island because it was so convenient for us to get there. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I, I told the kids, listen, I'm going to go. I'm going to go by train and, you know, bus and ferry. I'm, I'm going to do the whole thing. If you guys are interested, ask your parents, bring permission slips. I really can't take you guys. Uh, I'm only going to take a handful of kids because, you know, and, and by the way, it's after school, so you don't have to come. I'm going. Over 100, I mean, over 200 people showed up, kids uh, on trains. We took, but I, by myself, I took about 75 kids came with me. I felt like I was taking like three or four uh, train parts. We took a good portion of the part of that ferry. And a bunch of parents took their kids and teachers took kids. And, and, uh, and so when we got to Staten Island, we demanded to know. And, and Klein gave us an answer. Klein at the time was the chancellor. And Klein said... And Kathy Black. Uh, oh, no. no at, well, no. Kathy Black was out by, by then. Yeah, and Klein replaced and her. And Klein replaced yeah. her. And then when we got there, Klein, who replaced Black uh, after a couple of months, told us that there was nothing that he can do that the best that could happen was, the, I'm sorry, no, no, uh, yeah, Black re- replaced Clyde. I, I think that's how it was, uh, because I remember, okay, we were in Staten Island during Klein, and then shortly after, we kept going to PEP meetings, because, uh, but that was the last one for our school, and he told us very straightforward, he said, that there was nothing we could do, the college doesn't want to help, and so the best we could do is put you in a school with one other school, but it's across the street from, and he didn't tell us this, we figured this out on our own. It was across the street from a juvenile detention center, which is still there. The school's still there. What separates University Heights right now from uh, New Hori- from Horizons is, is the two train, the two and the five train. So that's it. And, and they're literally across the street. So the whole fight, when we went to fight, it was how dare you, you know, put us there. And the response was, this is all we can do. So we lost that fight. And so, you know, that brings me to Dennis later on of this. I think it's important, let me just comment on that thing. You don't win every struggle. And I think that that itself is an important lesson that you don't win the struggle is not a reason to stop struggling because you're going to win some, but you can't win if you don't keep pushing. So I have a question on a somewhat different tack, which is that some social studies or history teachers are very open with their students about their political perspectives. Others prefer students not to have any idea of their personal views. What do you see as, as the arguments, and this is for all, all three of you, what do you see as the arguments for each of these? And as teachers, do you share your political views with your students? My view is if we're having a discussion, if my in adding my voice to the discussion opens it up, then it's a value. If my adding my voice closes it down, 
then it defeats the purpose of having the discussion. So I try to be judicious on that. You know, kids will ask, one project I did, I always used to bring a Vietnam vet in to discuss his, it was always where guys, his experience in Vietnam. And I told the students, one day we're gonna have a Vietnam vet come in and discuss what it meant to be engaged in the war. And then the next day we're going to have an anti-war protester come in who's gonna explain why they were opposed to the war. And you're going to interview both of them to find out what their experiences were. So the first day we would have the veteran come in and the students would interview the veteran to find out what the experiences were, and what they learned. And then the second day, the students would come in because they want they were anxious to interview the anti-war protester. And they would say, Alan, where's the speaker today? And I would say, I'm the speaker. <laughs> and they would interview me and I would share my ideas. But that opened them up to new experiences and thoughts. But on other issues, I wouldn't state my position. However, one of the ways I would introduce a broader perspective for them was on my selection of documents. So you can bring, a teacher can bring in a document that introduces them to ideas. You don't have to say, I agree with that document, but Frederick Douglass on to what is the slave is the 4th of July or any of the documents in that Howard's invoices the American people. There's a, a very good letter by a couple whose uh, son died in 2001 and they, and they say, don't go to Iraq, not in our name. Or you can do the Robert Byrd piece on this will go down in infamy in history. So you don't have to say this is what I believe, but you can introduce students to different perspectives just based on the documents introduced in class. As, as for me, from the high school level and looking at younger kids and, and where I work, to be very sincere with you, that is one of the least of, of my issues because my kids aren't even interested in politics when they come to my room. They're not interested in, they want a credit and they're used to certain social studies habits and ways and that's what they know and they really don't know politics at all. So in 20 years, I've never have been asked, well, what are your political views, Pablo? I, I want them to explore. So my thing is, I, as long as you're inquisitive and you're looking, you know, it doesn't matter which way you go. So I have one, one student, for example, and he knew my stance on, you know, because through discussions as Alan said, he knew my stance on, on, on military and, and he knew my stance on, on certain issues. And he knew, you know, I, I would fall more on the left side. And, and he was one of these very, very witty young men who was with me from 10th grade through 12. Still, he decided to go to the military. And then he, uh, he went to the military after uh, two, two tours. He came back and um, very conservative. And, and, and I remember having a discussion with him. Uh, God bless himself. He was a University Heights student. And he passed away of cancer in 2013, 2014, I believe. I, I went to his wake. And, and he, was, uh, he, he became conservative. He was very conservative. But he was one of those kids that was very close to me. I didn't care whether you decided to go conservative or left. or right. I care that you get civically engaged and change your situation. And so my goal is to get them as civically engaged as possible so that they're no longer looking to who's going to solve their problems, but rather I know how to solve my problem. I've done this before. Let me go about, you know, making this change that will help me and will help my family. 
And so that's sort of where I stand. But as far as the political views, I, I don't see a reason to bring them up unless, unless it's part of the discussion. Very important, just to add to that, if kids believe something because I said it, the next year they're gonna believe some, whatever the next person says. You, you don't have that kind of impact. I don't, I'm not looking to recruit an army of 16 year olds. I'm looking to get 16 year olds to begin to think about their world. The one question that kids always used to ask me when we got to the 1960s was not about my political position, but they all wanted to know whether I used drugs. <laughs> and my answer was always the same. And I would always say, there are many things that I've done in my life, some of which I'm proud of and some of which I'm not, but none of which I will discuss with you. <laughs> Dennis, did you have thoughts on, on what Pablo and Alan have been saying? I agree with both of them, but I have like my perspective is that like when I put myself in the classroom, like and I'm gonna talk to the students and my goal obviously is to get them politically involved and to understand uh, to read more, to understand politics, because like, you know, that's part of that should and it should be completely embedded in the curriculum and like stated that students should, especially if you're like students learn about politics like the last year before they graduate. They learn it in probably like U.S. government and uh, economics. For me, I would always keep like what I have learned in it is uh, kids are always trying to stir away from, you know, either learning like in terms of like they don't want to they want to learn more about truth, try to distract you, things like that. My whole thing is that I want to keep the conversation, the dialogue within the students, because my perspective on like, I'm, I'll be a lot older than them by then, by the time I'm teaching. By, and if I'm like Alan, for example, I'm, if he goes into a classroom with eighth graders and ninth graders, you know, his political stance or my political stance won't align with them in about 20 years from now, because, you know, we're, we're not we're not in the same generation. I want to keep the conversation between the students with all my lessons. I want to keep it between the students because my way is that they're going to be the ones growing up with each other. They're the ones that are going to need to, to help one another. They're going to one that needs to understand that some people will have different opinions and they need to be able to express themselves without getting mad. Like Pablo said, my goal is to teach in a low income area. So like, like what Pablo is doing and I won't really probably won't have that kind of question asked me like, Oh, who do you, you know, are you going for Bernie? Like, they'll be like, who's Bernie Sanders, you know, or who's like, you're going to ask me like, Oh, who's Joe Biden. Right. It's like those questions are the ones that we're going to actually have to go into. And then from there, I'm moving into like, you know, what do these students understand from what we're learning in class? And I want to keep the, the dialogue not on me, but on them, because they're the focus. You know, I'm here to teach them. So that I feel that's how I feel. That the, the conversation should be towards them. And whether I believe whether what I believe in or not doesn't affect their decisions 10 years from now or when they decide to finally become politically involved. And my whole goal is for them to just understand politics and become involved like make sure when they turn 18 vote you know my goal is to be like uh pablo always has it i don't know if he still does it well, obviously because of corona but he always had a stack of voter registration like a big stack right on his desk and whenever a kid turned 18 he'd be like you should go vote you know like if you want to vote he'd be like go grab one it's on my desk you know my goal is to make sure that they're politically involved keep the discussion between them and keep them you know so they can understand that they have to respect each other and it's basically just to usher them into adulthood and usher them into becoming productive members of a growing society. So I need them to understand I need to work and collab. My opinion has nothing to do with their political standpoints or how involved they become in politics. That's how I feel, though. 
Alan and, and Pablo, have any of your students proposed action projects that you found unethical or offensive? And if so, how did you handle it? It's, it's a very good question. I, I've been challenged based on that by faculty members in my schools when I was a high school teacher. When the Forum Club organized the reproductive freedom dialogues with the two speakers and then went to Washington, there were faculty members that accused me of brainwashing the kids. And they said, well, you took them to Washington for the pro-choice rally, but you wouldn't have taken them to an anti-abortion rally. And I said, first of all, the Forum Club is the club that brought in a speaker to speak with students about anti-abortion. This was a speaker from a group called Birthright. But not only that, when the original group of students approached me, I said that I couldn't take them unless it was supported by the club. And then I made arrangements for them to go to Washington. I went with them with uh, Queens College. And what I would do if there were students in the club who wanted, for example, and there were students who did not believe in abortion rights, it's not my responsibility to take them to the rally, but it's my responsibility to make it possible for them to attend a rally. So I could then either enlist a teacher at the school who was opposed to abortion, or I, once again, I could make arrangements with a Queens College group, that was the local college, that they could attend with Queens College. So my responsibility was to make it possible for students to participate, but I did not necessarily have to attend with them. Pablo? For me, I don't think I've ever had any proposed, uh, you know, you know, when the kids are goofing off during dialogue, they'll say something, but even when they do say something, it, they, they know, I, I don't know, I've never, I've never encountered that problem in all these years. That, that's an interesting one. I've never had a kid say, I think, again, it's because my kids are not engaged at all. So when they get to me, it's almost like I'm starting from new. So I don't think I've ever had that situation where a kid suggested an inappropriate. I, I did have another incident. It was a rally against racism in Howard Beach, Queens, many years ago, because a mob of white young men attacked two black men who were car had broken down and one of them ended up running on the highway and getting killed. There was a rally demanding racial justice. And I was attending with the local, a local community group. And the club raised whether they could come. And I said to the club, I didn't think I could bring you. I couldn't guarantee your safety. So there were club members that were very disappointed that if I couldn't guarantee safety, they couldn't come. However, I said, there is going to be a rally at City Hall, and that'll be during the day. This was an evening rally. It'll be different circumstances. If people want in the club want to organize, I will take you to that rally. But I can't take you to a rally where I can't guarantee your safety as an adult, as your teacher. And you've never encountered students who were racist or with whom you oh, would yeah, have. Yeah, but, but see, uh, my racism is different from what Alan would experience because uh, the racism that we experience at our school is along the lines of, it, it, the school is 99% minority. So it's all Latinos and African-American. So the, the racism that I'm catching as a teacher is amongst the Spanish kids that are just entering 
because they have a misconception of race in, you know, certain groups that I'm getting, you know, from where they come from, it, it, they, they're very open with their racism and they themselves may be of color of what, of what the majority would consider black or, or even people of color, but they don't believe so. So in Spanish, they would say little racist comments, which I in turn, I speak, I'm bilingual, I correct them immediately. So I make sure and I turn their racist comments into complete lessons. And so I'm gonna give you a fine example. You know, I teach, I have a very, uh, I have for the past, I want to say 12 years, I've had, a, or 13 years, I've had a larger population of Dominican kids from the Dominican Republic. And so I remember when this first happened in the early 2000s, I want to say 2005, 2006, where kids said in Spanish, uh, something very racist. And, and I stopped and I said, excuse me. And then he said, what are you getting mad about? You're not black. And I said, it doesn't matter. And then I had to start explaining it to him. But then he gave me this whole lesson that he learned in his country. And I said, wait, wait a minute, it doesn't make sense. So it kind of forced me to go learn about the Dominican Republic. And then I learned about Trujillo. And I learned about what he did in, in the Dominican Republic. And then it just so happens, you know, several years later, Howard Gates, William Howard Gates does this whole thing, uh, Black in, in the Caribbean. And everything that I learned, I actually now, now it's easier for me to teach if I ever need to. I can actually show that video, but I had to learn about their culture and their society and what they went through. And I also had to you know, understand that they've been taught in a way that needs to be untaught. So, you know, first thing I gotta, I gotta teach them is stop. Black people are not Haitians. The Haitians are in, in Haiti, in, 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 which is part of the, the island, but blacks here are black Americans. And, and those blacks are not black Americans, those are uh, Honduran and they're Garifonos. So that's another group that I had to learn about because I, I, they face racism, but in their culture, they tend to sort of blend into others. So what I mean by that is the Black Hondurians, you would think are African-American and, and they will act and they will take the culture. And then the, the lighter skinned ones would, will be Puerto Rican and they will act and take the culture until within the, those cultures, you start seeing the differences. So they face a lot of discrimination in, in, the, in the Honduran world of the Garifanos. And so I had to learn about that coach and learn about their history in order to teach those particular students because you've got to start from where they're from and their reality and then unteach certain things that you must reteach here. I'm actually, what you were just talking about, especially in terms, say, of relationships between Dominicans and Haitians, where obviously the two countries, you know, have a very you know, complex history, and also where issues of color have, have very strongly played a role in that. Um, you find that, and that's just one example, obviously, there are examples from literally every single country in the world. What's been your experience, Pablo, in terms of, of breakthroughs of somebody, say, who's a dark-skinned Dominican, who doesn't see him or herself as black, but also makes racist comments about Haitians. Okay. What have you found in terms of your ability to help people change how they think about it? It's interesting you say that I have one on Facebook that we him and I talk all the time. Uh, he's a black uh, Dominican that was like that. And interesting enough, and, and I'm not saying anyone has to do this or any, it's just what really just happened. And he married an African-American uh, female that had uh, babies. So he considers himself now Afro, Dominican, and he still has a very thick accent uh, because he got here when he was maybe uh, 12 or 13. And uh, now he's like, I, I believe he's 30 or 31. 
and he's married with, with two kids. And, uh, so I've seen it in, the, in those respects. I've also seen in, in schools where the, the teachers themselves intervene and enforce the little breakups, I've seen a lot of success in those schools. The schools where no one intervenes and it's almost like left to, you know, because obviously these are Spanish kids and, you know, they're leaving their country, their homeland, which, you know, hey, you're used to like beaches and palm trees. Now you're coming to snow and like this craziness, you, you know, you can't even imagine what they're going through. So unfortunately, when these kids get here, sometimes they just go kind of like try to gravitate towards one another and which is great, but teachers need to step up. And one of the problems we're having, we don't have enough bilingual teachers. We just don't. And the bilingual teachers are stuck in, in, in classrooms that are completely re removed from every other classroom. And they sometimes get stuck on those lines. So there needs to be what I've seen completely integrated schools in, in both race, class, gender, and uh, language. I've seen that a lot of breakthroughs, a lot. But also you will get uh, some kids that have problems with their parents. You know, they'll, they'll have, of course, conflict at home because it, it goes completely against what the family is, the dinner conversations. You know, it, it kind of, so that's where the, the, the sort of sometimes the pushback comes. Yes. Sure. The way I tried to address it was by creating a sense of classroom community and saying, we are people who are exploring our world and acting on it together. And so in this community, there were two rules. And I said, the rules are based on the teachings of uh, Professor Franklin. And they would say, well, who's Professor Franklin? I said, don't you know Professor Aretha Franklin? <laughs> and these are the two rules. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out what it means to me, and think, think before you act. And in our community, if we respect each other, and we think before we act, we can do wonderful things and learn together. And by the way, but by the way, let me just add this, because I have to piggyback on that, what Alan said. The reason that I've never dealt with overt racism in the classroom or any of those things is because what Alan just said, the respect part. That's, those, that's the thing that I do in my classes from the day that I walk in. Um, you know, I give them my three rules. I only have three rules. I, I do not believe in setting so many rules that the kid is running around trying to figure out how to break them rather than <laughs> learn what you're trying to teach. So rules to me are, are you know, I, I live on a concept of the trust system. Like I, I literally have always lived my life on that system. And so I brought that into the classroom. And so I tell the kids from day one, first, I'm going to respect you, but respect is reciprocal. I expect you to be respectful to me. That's number one. Number two, when someone is speaking, they must respect one another. And so you'll see me sit down and listen to them because they're the teacher in the classroom at the moment. So you disrespecting them goes back to disrespecting me because that's the teacher in the classroom. And then rule number three is I will never say no to go to the bathroom, just one person at a time. And that's it. And don't take too long. I added that 15 years ago. Just I remember adding it one year just to try it. And it became my norm forever. I still do it to this day. And I'm talking ninth through 12th grade, South Bronx, and I've never had a, a, an issue. The, the kids really take respect to the heart. Another question is, some teachers find themselves in schools where the in administration is anxious to avoid anything that could be controversial. How do you recommend that teachers should work with unsupportive principals? Okay, I'm going to be very sincere with you. Uh, one of the things that I did, I, I wanted to know the rules to the game. So I became a union chapter leader 
I really wanted to know the, the, what the union had to offer as far as protection and as far as, as those things. I, I always want to know my parameters. Number two, when I, when, when I did become a UFT chapter leader, I figured out how to negotiate a win-win situation on all sides. So what I used to do with my, my principals uh, using my UFT hat at times was tell them honestly, if anything were to come to the school, it will come directly to me, not to them. So one of the things that administ my administrators, at least, always saw, I, I remember one of my administrators, I'm not gonna say her name, but she pulled me to the side, she said, listen, I got a call from Bloomberg's office. I, I, don't, want, I don't want him in here, I, I'm close to retiring. Pablo, don't do this to me. And I said, look, I, I'm not. Bloomberg didn't show up, but he sent one of his representatives. And so it, it was a lot less of a hit for the principal. So these are things that you gotta let your administrators know that they have to trust you. They can't walk into a room and you're on your phone or you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing, and then suddenly you're going to turn around and tell your administrator, I want to take my kids on a trip to Long Island to a university and let them run loose. That, that'll never fly. So if they trust you and, and the rapport is there, uh, most of those things that you will do will not... Once you master your content and your rapport with the students is solid and, and, and you have a presence, um, and that has to be developed. It takes a couple of years. It takes time but it's worth it. And once you get there, you're at a whole different level. And that goes with the kids more so than anyone else. So I, I can tell you this, I've never, I've been asked this question a bunch of times. The last person asked me this question was my current principal and he was trying to make a point and I get his point because I was defending someone a, a couple of years back. And he said to me, he looked at me and he said, Pablo, you've been, if you were a chapter leader in your old school, you've been a chapter leader here for a couple of years. I said, yeah, he said, I, he said collectively 15 years. He said, how many letters do you have in your file? And I said, none. And he go, why is that? I said, I, I don't know. And he was the one who gave me, he said, because you understand the guidelines, whereas they do not, and you need to explain that to them. And that's when I said, oh, wow, I, I didn't think, because you kind of do stuff. You don't kind of, you don't stop and think and analyze your own actions at times. I, I just stick with administrators, and I've only literally worked in, for, I mean, three separate schools, but three different buildings, it's just weird. Um, if, this is the key, I think, yeah. to what you're saying. Okay. Change things if you can't keep your job. And that is yes. very important. One of the things we did in the book. Alan, when I get your age, Alan, I want to be able to do that. That's what I want to be able to do. Why would you just do it right there? <laughs> one of the things we did in the book is we have one chapter on one of state and national standards on civics. So the teachers can then point to administrators and say, no, what I'm doing, that's what the standard says. The other, we have another chapter on the legal rights of teachers in different states in the United States. So you have some understanding of how far you can go, but you can't go further. You can't, there are certain things you can't do. So uh, can I give an example? Uh, I'll give you an example. Washington, D.C., uh, there was a march uh, that all the unions were doing for workers in 2010. And, and Alan wrote about this because I actually met Alan over there. Um, originally, I was only supposed to take teachers. So I went to the union, and they gave me a bus of 56 people. I was able to only secure five teachers to go with me to Washington, D.C. on a Saturday morning. So I said to the union, guys, can I take kids? And they were like, well, if the ratio is correct, why not? As long as you have parental consent and this is a Saturday, so no one's getting paid. I said, no worries, no worries. So we, I decided, I told my students, meet at 5.30 a.m. in front of the school in the South Bronx, meet me at 5.30 in the morning and five teachers showed up 
and I had over 60 kids show up and the bus was full to capacity. I had to, I had to tell about four kids, I'm sorry, I, you can't go, I promise you a different trip. Now, I, the union put food, because I called them up, I said, look, I got a full bus and I got five, five teachers and I have 54 kids, or 55 kids, and I need you to, um, can there be food or something? Because I can't afford to buy all of them something and I, I want to get them all. The union packed it with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so the, the kids were taken over there. We had breakfast on the bus. And then uh, when they got there, we had lunch. And then on the way back, we had dinner. Every, everything was paid for by the union. But most importantly, the kids had an amazing experience, which they were very, very, very quick to to express themselves on Alan Singer's uh, Huffington Post blog uh, because he met us there. And so here we are walking and through this huge protest during the time of, of Occupy Wall Street and, and these kids from the South Bronx are, are completely and utterly engulfed in, in government on a Saturday at 5.30. You know, those are things that are inexplicable. I wish I could tell you that there was some sort of magic to it, but it's only, you know, it's what you do that's going to eventually count, especially what you do with those kids. The other thing, and again, Pablo talked about the Huffington Post. One of the things that I, I always did in what we do with Pablo is we publicize everything that we do. Schools like good publicity. So if you, I, like, I did a project with a middle school in Long Island called, it's in Hempstead. Hempstead is a very segregated, Long Island is very segregated narrow school districts, each racially, ethnically, economically segregated. The kids in Hempstead, all black and Latino, were learning in eighth grade, were learning about Brown v. Board. And they asked the teacher, how come if the Supreme Court says schools are integrated, there are only black and Latino kids here? We organized, they, they also learned about the Freedom Riders. So we organized the Freedom Walkers and they made t-shirts and signs, posters and songs, and they marched from their school a half a mile to Garden City, which is all white, and then another half a mile to a park in Garden City, which said residents only. Now, we notified Garden City that we were coming and that we were being accompanied by a reporter from Newsday. Garden City welcomed them for their picnic in the park because they knew it was being covered by the press. And Hampstead, which was a little weary, were very pleased that these two teachers, middle school teachers I was working with, got them positive coverage in the newspaper. So I always try to get media coverage because media coverage makes the school look good and the administrators and are more willing to allow you to do these things. And by the way, let me say this. At times, sometimes people even confused by administrators because remember, administrators are just, they're doing what they can with what they have. And, and this I've learned throughout the years of working closely with them. Sometimes teachers believe that the administrator doesn't want them to do something. And the administrator says, I, I really don't care if you do it as long as you do it and, and, and there's no problems. So, you know, I, I think a large part, we, we can't really, I, I'm not saying don't care about what the principal thinks. It's more, don't worry as long as you're doing the correct thing. Like, you, you know you're following the guidelines. You know, ultimately, you can defend your position that this is for the student's benefit. Once 
you can no longer say this for students' benefit that something is wrong. And, and I, I've never been down that road, but um, yeah, I, this I got from Alan years ago, which is if it benefits a student, then it's probably really good. So, and that's the, that's the model I take. John, Amy, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but in New York City, in order to have street creds with kids, you gotta be able to rap. So I have an alter ego. Kids in New York City, they know me as Reese's Pieces. And they call me Reese's Pieces because I'm better than Eminem. So I do a lot of political raps. I, I wanted to share one with you today. Please do. This is my activism rap. But in order to rap, I got to get my hat the right way. Now, I'm bad. I'm not bad like a rapper. I'm just bad, but just for fun. So it goes like this. Climate catastrophe, George Floyd memory, Parkland students die, we must always ask why. COVID makes us sit at home, makes it hard for us to roam. But never forget the biome, that's why I wrote this poem. School is a place to learn, so you can make the world churn. Join with Greta and me, and maybe save democracy. Thank you, this is he does this everywhere. By the way, he did this in the South Bronx, and, and they loved it. <laughs> he did this in my school. I have different raps for different locations, but it's always the same. It's we got to tell the truth, and we got to organize for change. Let's come back to Earth for a sec. Um, so the New York State Regents exams were canceled this year. But in past years, there's been tremendous pressure on teachers to cover the region's material to ensure that students get high scores. How do you integrate project-based learning with student mastery of the region's format? What are some examples? You know, Dennis, maybe you could answer it from the perspective of a student who had to take the region's exams but got all involved in Pablo's political activism projects. Okay, I can speak to that. I want to say that it's, I don't really know, like, how to explain, like, the theory behind it, right? It's it's rather interesting to see because before Pablo came to the school, all of my friends, because Pablo was in Bronx Design and Construction, which is upstairs from my school. He ended up switching to my school, which was downstairs, which is Alfred E. Smith CTI school, but he was still in the same building. Um, he came downstairs. Before Pablo was there, nobody, none of my friends can pass, like, the global exam. Like, I think it was, like, 26% the passing rate. After that, Pablo came. He transitioned through the summer, and he started teaching, like, the way he teaches, civic engagement, just the same way that he does and, and how he was. And the passing rate that summer and then that previous year skyrocketed to, like, 70 or 80%. Like, I, I don't remember telling me, but I was, I was student body president, so I was sitting in in the assistant principal's office and she was like amazed and they were like praising Pablo as to like how he like did such a turnaround in the school. Um, come US history regions, right? We're in 11th grade now. It's the same thing. We're getting, we're, we're starting the year off and we're doing, so we're starting with the constitution. We were thinking about political involvement. I was, I had enough about uh, metal detectors. One day we came mad into his class. He asked us what was wrong and we told him and he told us what you're gonna do about it. We told him, we're like, what can we do? There's nothing we could really do. He was like, there's something you can always do. 
And then he proceeded with his lesson. And we were his lesson that day was the Bill of Rights. We we're going through the Bill of Rights. We were learning about the Bill of Rights. And then at the end of the class, he proposes, he says, is there a student Bill of Rights? So he looks at us and I was like, I don't know. So next thing you know, me and my friend, Ibrahim Alpika, we go home that day and we go look at it and we're like, okay, we look it up. There is a student Bill of Rights. Suddenly we became relatively involved in wondering like why metal detectors were placed in Suddenly, like our class, became, like we went to Pablo's class and we would learn, but like we were just more focused on civic engagement. Every day was just like us, like looking up different things and showing Pablo. And he was like, oh, okay, what are you going to do about it? He was just kept asking, like, what are you going to do about it? He never like told us to do it. He never told us to look up anything. We just kept looking at it. He just kept like picking at our curiosity and the relative, like, re like, I guess, part would be that once we get went to taking like regents exam and things like that like i don't remember it being so hard because like alan said we were learning the content through experience as we went through the year so we were learning we were doing project-based activity all year round but he was connecting it to the curriculum and to the topics and by the time we got to take the exam I mean, I know I got like a 99 or something like that, 99, 98 on the Regents exam. But most of everybody there passed. I think like he had, I think by the time the summer hit, by the time the summer hit, the entire class of 2016 was 100% passing rate for the U.S. history regions before their senior year. Let me follow up on that and, and very specifically ask Alan and Pablo, how as teachers, you know, as you were going through, in this case, I guess it was Pablo, the process that Dennis was describing from the student's point of view, what did you actually, how did you actually make these connections? Because it seems to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there are two separate issues here. One is dealing with the specific body of knowledge that, that the regents are looking for. Did you cover this subject in the way that we want you to cover it? And the second is how do kids make the transition from, for example, Alan's rap to the format, the questions, the responses on the regents. Because we know that so often students have enormous verbal skills, for example, but they don't show up on ELA tests. So for looking at now very specifically from the point of view of relatively new teachers who are listening and who would say, wow, I really like to do that. What do you recommend that they actually do mechanically? Okay, this, I, this is what I've been doing for the past, I want to say, 18 years, 19 years. Uh, not the whole time, but I think I started the year after. My do-nows are all current events, but not just random. It's not just random. It's, Alan taught me this years ago, but Alan said it in a different way. And because I'm, I'm you know, he, was, he comes from an age where people used to have newspapers and stuff. So Alan used to tell me, I used to grab all the newspaper that they were throwing out. I would go through them and get the best ones. And then I would choose which ones make the most sense for them and, and kind of gear it towards the community and how it affects them. So what I do with do now is, for example, like when this COVID thing started, one of my lessons actually, even before they closed schools, was how do I get kids to understand it? So we did 1918, the, the Spanish flu, um, influenza. And then we, we were talking, you know, so how can COVID possibly look like that? So how do you get a kid to want to learn about the Spanish flu of 1918? Well, this is a great time to teach that. However, 
if you are teaching in 2008 around that era, maybe you might want to teach, you know, even now, if it's a possibility, an econ a possible economic collapse. You know, how do you get this? It's still one know about the economy, right? But they do want to know if they can get a job. So I may bring in an article that day that relates to AI. And I might bring, you know, uh, for example, the New York, the United States Postal Service is now uh, have selfless driving trucks, uh, self-driving trucks, which they started in 2019. And they haven't had any incidents in the past year. And now they're thinking of, of increasing it from the near 2% they have right now to like 40%. And they have these huge numbers. That's a huge industry that's going to be gone. You know, so how do you teach that? And how do you get them to understand that, hey, guys, truck driving is no longer an option for you. Let's look around. Okay. So you open up options. And I think once you get them to think, do so now. One of the things I do in the very beginning, and I take it from best articles written on this, was called uh, The Poverty of Words. And it shows that a kid from an impoverished area uh, and a kid from a, a professional family, uh, it, there's a difference in 32 million words, uh, a gap. There's a gap of 32 million words, literary speaking. And so my goal with, with these with do nows is you're going to read it. Uh, it may be some quick content. If there are words in there, then when we're talking, I have the kids like before I start the lesson. If it's part of the lesson, I would say read out loud some responses. And then the kid, you know, two kids are reading a lot of the responses. And so I'm careful to make sure to catch words that they don't understand or they're just saying. And so do you know what that means? And once they say not really, okay, let's go, let's go through it. So how do you teach, teach a kid that that has never eaten a frozen turkey, you know, to thaw a turkey? How do you do that? You know, so when you hear uh thawing it out, what does that mean? Oh, you know when a turkey's frozen or anything's frozen and you just let it slowly melt. So you have to take that and then you say, go ahead, say it, fall. You sort of do this in class. Again, it's important the first month to develop a rapport and a presence in the classroom. That way, the rest of the months, the kids will do whatever. They're kids. They just want to feel safe and they want to feel valued and they want to feel respected. And if you show them those three basic human traits, you could get them to do basket weeding. I'm on I'm being honest about it. Let me, let me add. So I use what I call a social studies approach to the study of history. But what that means is we use the past to help us better understand the present. And we use the present to help us better understand and formulate questions about the past. So we're, the United States is in turmoil now over the Confederate memorials, with over Black Lives Matter, over police behavior. Well, you can start off looking at newspaper articles about those things, and then you look at how we got here. How did we get these Confederate memorials? You begin to look at Jim Crow segregation in uh, the United States post-Civil War. You look at the police issues, and these are long-term issues. They go back to slave patrols. Aubrey, who got murdered in Georgia with, under the citizen's arrest, that citizen's arrest law was passed in Georgia during the Civil War because police were all involved in the, the Confederate Army. So basically, they empowered any white person to stop, arrest, and kill any black person. So you're using the past to understand how we got to the present. You're using the present to understand the past. And as, as Dennis said, all of a sudden everybody is engaged. 
Everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to read. And then all of a sudden, these tests aren't so difficult because we have engaged learners who are working through difficult material because they want to understand. It's clear that the type of education you're talking about is qualitatively far above what most students receive. That said, with the regents, aren't we talking about a sort of quantity of content? You know, you have to know a whole lot of stuff. How do no. you know? Not of the test is. What, what happens, on, and I always used to say to the kids, first of all, the level of work we're doing in class is harder than the regents. So you don't have to worry about it. Then what I would do is I would incorporate region style questions into my lessons, into my classroom assessments, so they were comfortable with it. And then- Oh, and by the way, I, I, we, I don't call them regions, I just embed them. And I, Alan taught me this, demystifying the regions. Because sometimes we, unknowingly, we make it harder and we give more anxiety to kids when you can easily, I tell them exactly what, Alan taught me that years ago. So I say to them, guys, because some of them, I've had kids literally tell me, are we ever gonna go over the regions? And it's me. And I'm like, I, I say to them, you've been going over the entire time. And then like a week before, I'll go over some questions and they'll say, but we, we've done that. Exactly. Why are you worried? Because you make it sound like we're all going to pass. And I'm like, you are going to pass. I'll see you tomorrow when you pass. And we did. <laughs> we did. The last piece is that the study of history is thematic. You can't touch on every piece of information. So I'm not grilling them on facts. If there's something we missed, they'll get a 98 instead of 100. My goal is that everybody passes the exam and feels good about what they did, not to grill so one kid can get 100. And if you teach that way, they all pass. And this is interesting. My, pass, my average scores were not always as high as the honors class, but my passing percentage in regular classes was at least as high, if not better, than in the school honors classes. Why? Because the kids were engaged, they were excited, and they did demanding work all year long. So the Regents was no big deal. Can, can the strategies that you use in social studies be used in other subjects as well? I'm thinking specifically of math and other STEM subjects. I actually ran a course, last class was today, for middle school teachers. And we actually had two sections. One section was English, social studies. The other section was math science. And they were for teachers who were working with kids fifth grade through eighth grade. And every lesson opened up with projects. And I didn't invent this. This is the work of Bob Moses, the civil rights activist who wrote a book called Radical Equations. And Bob Moses argues that we have to start with the concrete so students understand what you're talking about. And then you go to the abstract. So one of the projects was translating between Celsius and Fahrenheit. So we were doing experiments with thermometers. How, what temperature was at Celsius? What temperature was at Fahrenheit? The kids were recording their results. 
Then what they did is, so they put, created a chart. Now these were teachers doing this. They created a chart. So they saw this Celsius was the equivalent of this Fahrenheit. Well, then what we did is I gave them, we had to figure out what was the relationship between Celsius and Fahrenheit. I want you to talk it through. And this is what Bob Moses calls people talk. And then what we said is, well, now let's do it a little bit in more mathematical terms, what he calls feature talk. He said, now that you understand what the difference is between the two scales, I want you to see if you can come up with a formula for calculating. But we didn't memorize the formula. We created the formula based on developing understanding first. So I argue this approach can be used in every subject. There's also a, a former math teacher in New York City who did staff development named Kay Tolliver. And she had a series of videos called Good Morning, Miss Tolliver. And she also taught math by first starting with the concrete, with the world around us to figure out what the issues were. And then at the last step was formula and calculation, not the first. And we interviewed Bob Moses. There's a two-part interview in our archives, which can be found on our website, ethicalschools.org. I'm going to go watch that one now. <laughs> so what advice, aside from what you haven't mentioned, would you have for new social studies teachers, say, for Dennis? One of the things I would tell them is, number one, depends when you're coming in. And this is very important because I, I, I'm doing the same thing with the graduate courses. I have some students that are coming in and they're, you know, they may be in their 40s and others that are coming in when they're 23. Um, I always tell them to remember your audience. If, if you're going to a high school and you're, and you're younger, act older. You have to be older. Uh, so Dennis is going to high school. He, he's 22, I think 23 now, correct? Yeah, 23. So I would, exactly what I said to Dennis, you're going to go there. You know, if you're asked, how old are you? Well, I'm old. I just look very young, but I'm old. And, and gone, you know, that's the one thing I would say, you know, know your audience. Another thing it's, it's, I think is very important, linguistically, do not. And this is a big issue. And I teach this to a lot of the teachers that are brand new and coming from the suburbs into the inner city. Don't be dismissive of the culture. Try to learn as much as you possibly can. It's not going to change you. I mean, it might change you in a good way, but it, it won't damage you. It, it, it will just open up other windows that weren't there before. So you're able to understand when a kid's having a conversation in front of you and they're using very urban terms, you know what the discussion is all about. And, and so you sometimes, even while I'm teaching, I may use a, the, for, the, the, the jargon, the teacher jargon, and that may not work, and I'll look for another more common word. And then I have to take it almost to the colloquial or even the you know colloquial. And I have to find a word that relates to that one to give them that word. So you do kind of need to flip through these language, the different languages, and, and, and the new mixes that are coming in. And, and as long as you stay involved and researching at all times, you will always be very effective in front of your students. And by the way, when I say research, it doesn't only mean opening a book. It means, you know, knowing what the students are listening to. Just recently, you know, I, I, right before the COVID happened, I was doing remote learning 
And one of the videos that popped up uh, was a uh, little baby, uh, the bigger picture, you know, and, and it falls perfectly into what was going on at the end of June with Black Lives Matter. And I put it up as a video and I said to the kids, you know, write what you think about this video. And I got massive responses because, you know, it's their world. That's, it, it's a new song. It's, 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 it's an artist that the kids are listening to. It, it's an artist that's speaking, uh, you know, a lot of truth to, to power. And so you want to be engaged in what they are listening to and what they're going through. Uh, you want to be as engaged as you possibly can in their lives so you can be the most effective teacher possible. Let me add, Bill, on something that Pablo said. And this was something that I had difficulty with when I started out when I was 21 years old. And that is, you have to be the adult in the room. The kids need you to be their teacher, not their friend. You can treat them with respect, with decency, but you always have to be the adult. If a kid is having a bad head day and they're acting out, you're the one who has to back off because you're not there to provoke an incident. And you just say, I'll catch you later, we'll talk about this later. Now, I was also a street kid. The three of us grew up in the South Bronx, but Pablo and I actually went to the same middle school about 30 years apart. So, you know, I had difficulty because I was a, I was a kid from that neighborhood, from that street. And I, you know, I would react and I had to learn I was the adult and I couldn't react. They were the kids and I had to treat them that way. Um, the other thing I would add, and this is something I say to all my classes when new students come to the teacher ed program. And it was funny because I said it today, but with a twist. I always say, you're here and you're gonna do it my way because my way is consistent with effective teaching and New York state mandates. When you're done, some of you are going to go like this and say, thank heavens, I never have to see him again. And some of you, I will work with you your entire career as long as you want to work with me. And the choice is yours. That's, that's it. And by the way, I pass that same thing down to, to my students. So if for that question about the middle school and how to do it, Randell, Verona, and Tyreek are both middle school teachers here in the Bronx. I was just talking to them on the phone yesterday. If I would, I, I'm sorry, I, I could have invited them as well. But they, they would have given you a very good answer because they've been teaching now for over three years each. Uh, they've been teaching here in the South Bronx. You know, I, I'm seeing it. Everything Alan is saying, I, I, you know, those kids that I wrote about, they're very real. <laughs> they're, they're around. Uh, you know, one of those is an artist. She's a, a pop artist, you know. Uh, so it's, these things are very real. They're very real. You know, Alan told me this a long time ago, and, and I'll share it, which is, and this is for all new teachers, and, and the kids should, for me, they know it automatically because it's already, I've been doing it for so long. But remember that it's your world they're entering, and you have almost complete control of your world. And so if they're going to enter your world, they should be, it, it should be under universal terms created by you as the teacher. And those terms are safety above all. Uh, and I mean safety both physically, mental, emotional, I mean all, all forms of safety. And, and just, you know, the, the right intentions. And, and also master your content, master your content. Kids will know when you're lying to them. You'll know, don't lie, you know? You don't know, I don't know. I, I'll look for it tomorrow. And I did that with, with Dennis and everyone. And they used to ask me, how come you say you, you don't know? I don't know. 
you got to be honest about it. And so when you're that honest, they're that honest. Kids are not complicated at all. I used to play basketball with the kids during after school. And when I taught middle school, I was a good player. And when I taught high school, they had to take care of me because I couldn't keep up with them. And but what I said to the kids is when I play, I'm still your teacher. And I used to have the kids call me Alan. They said, I'm still your teacher, which means there's language we can't use while we're playing together. If you want to use that language, that's okay, but then I can't play because I'm your teacher. And every once in a while, one of the kids would foul and shout the N-word. And then another kid would say, no, you can't talk that way because we want Alan to play. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Alan Singer, Dr. Pablo Muriel, and Dennis Bellen Morales. Thank you. thank you. And thank you, listeners. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating or review. This helps other people to find the show. Check out our website, ethicalschools.org, for more episodes and articles, and subscribe to our monthly emails. We post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes. We also work with consultants to offer customized SEL programs with a focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City area. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. That's hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denty. Till next week.